Yesterday afternoon, I found myself thinking about life a little bit. I was out on the back porch with Luke, our five-year-old. Beautiful day, spring in Prescott Valley, and got him a bowl of water to play in because he wanted it. And like any five-year-old, he's having a blast, splashing it everywhere. And then he decided to start dipping his feet in that water. He was barefoot, and I watched as he would dip it in there and He'd say, Daddy, look at my footprints. And he'd run across the patio, and there'd be these little five-year-old footprints. Then I started getting philosophical. I saw those footprints, how quickly they, they disappeared in the heat. That's two things that happen to guys when we get older, right? One is we get a little more philosophical. The other is we, we talk about our aches and pains a lot more, right? <laughs> that happened, too, last week. I was back in that corner. And I stood up, and Will said, you sound like me when I stand up. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you made a loud noise. <laughs> I said, I didn't even know I made it, man. But we talk about our aches and pains. And, and if you're like me, longer you live, you think more about, about life. And I'm looking at those, those footprints, how quickly they're disappearing, thinking, man, that's kind of like these kids are growing up too fast. It's a picture of that in my mind. And maybe because it's birthday season. You know, we, get, we had one just turned five, one just turned 13, one's about to turn 16. And then I go from there to just thinking about those moments. And, and Randy Travis got me too. I had some Randy Travis playing on a speaker <laughs> out back, and he's singing about love a little longer. And I forget all the words, but it's because these moments aren't going to be here forever. And I'm like, oh. Is hitting me, and then I, I go to thinking about just those footprints evaporating, like the brevity of life itself. How short a time we're here, even our whole lives. Like the, the biblical perspective is we're like the grass of the field, the flowers here today, gone tomorrow. It's it's the word of God that that lives forever, lasts forever. So it's like when you think about the brevity of life. You ask the question, do those moments really matter? You know, so many people come and go throughout the centuries. Do they matter? And the biblical answer is yes. Absolutely they matter. Every moment matters. I get that from Moses. Did you know he wrote Psalm 90? Likely after doing many funerals in the desert as he buried person after person after person and saw the brevity of life on display during those 40 years of wandering what did he say in there he said teach us to number our days what's that mean don't let them just fly by and get to the end and say what did i do with those i wasted them all no teach us to number them to value them to to cherish those moments are valuable they're valuable because every one of those moments is also in the hands of our, our sovereign God. As brief as those moments are, He's working in those moments. How, how do we know that? Well, Ephesians 1.10, Paul talks about the fact that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. He's working towards that plan. And then he goes on in Ephesians 1.11, he says, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So as he works toward that plan, he works all things, every moment in his sovereignty towards that perfect will. What about Romans 8? He works all things for good to those 
who love him. Yes, everyday moments matter. I'm going to show you an example of that in Ruth chapter 4. In, in three everyday moments, I want you to think of the everyday moments of your life. We're going to look at a meeting at the city gate. That's something that happened often in a little town like Bethlehem. We're going to look at a marriage. Every day around the world, somebody's getting married, right? And we're going to look at the birth of a baby. Same thing. Every day around this world, babies are born. But we're going to see the value of a moment as God works in those things. First, let's start with the gate. Now, let's set a little context. In case you haven't been with us the past few weeks, you'll remember Ruth and Naomi were in Moab because of a famine. They came back for food. They were destitute because while they were in Moab, what happened? Their husbands died. So chapter 1 was a very dark moment in their lives. They're, they're in pain. They're grieving. Chapter 2, Ruth finds Boaz, gets some food from his field. Chapter 3, Naomi says, hey, Ruth, why don't we see if he could be your redeemer, someone to, to get this land in the name of our family and maybe have a son to perpetuate the family name and the inheritance. And, and Ruth goes up there and puts his cover over her as her humble but bold request. Would you receive me? As your bride. And you remember at the end of that, after, after Naomi told her to do that and Ruth came back, Naomi said in Ruth 3.18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Chapter 4, we're at that today. What's he going to do? He's going to go to the city gate. Verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Why the gate? Well, the gate in a town like Bethlehem was kind of like the county courthouse or city hall. It's a place where transactions happened and were witnessed. One time I was down at the county courthouse in Prescott on the square, and my friend Michael Holliver was down there with a sign announcing the foreclosure of a home and the upcoming auction. So people would know a lot of stuff like that happens at the courthouse. That's what happened at the city gates. In these days, business happened there. And it says, Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. What, what Redeemer is that? You remember in chapter 3, he had told Ruth, Hey, there's one other relative that's closer than I that has first dibs. We need to talk to him first. We need to do this the right way. We need to do this above board. So as Boaz sits there, here comes that other closer relative. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And the Hebrew is even more interesting. It's more like, turn aside so-and-so. It, it doesn't say his name. And some believe the author did that on purpose. We'll talk more about why later. Turn aside, friend, so-and-so. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So those ten elders sat down. The Hebrew word for elders is interesting. Bill would definitely qualify. Someone having a beard. Check, check that guy out. Dude, depending on how literally they took that, I, I might struggle to get in. Like, like I, I was talking with Lemuel, who's Native American, one day about that. And my theory is it, that it's partially because I, I have a little thread of Native American in me. And, and he looked at the spots on my face and he said, what, Apache? <laughs> <laughs> Lemuel is like the king of the, the dad jokes. If you want some dad jokes, you've got, got to talk to Lemuel. 
rolling with that, like how do you know when a joke goes from being just a joke to being a dad joke? It's when it becomes apparent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Coming back. These are <laughs> these are elders. What's the beard imply? Some age, some wisdom in life, and, and Boaz calls them to be witnesses. He may or may have not have been an elder in the city himself. But they sit down. That's the preparation. Now he's going to make a proposition to this other redeemer. Verse 3. says, He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the other man said, I will redeem it. So, so far, all Boaz has mentioned is the land, right? And the guy said, okay, I'll redeem it. But I believe Boaz, in addition to loving the Lord and loving Ruth very much and wanting to marry her, as many have said, was also a very wise man. He had the wisdom of the serpent in this moment because he, he saved some of the small print of what this would take till the very end. He got the man to say, I will redeem it. And it's almost though he said, oh, by the way, verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. He may have even included that phrase on purpose. This is a, a foreigner from an idol-worshipping country. Ruth, the, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Maybe it was because she was a Moabite. Maybe it was because he knew that if he kept that land in Elimelech's family and had a son with Ruth, then that inheritance would go to Ruth's son. Maybe he knew the cost of operating another piece of land and that that money would go away from his own sons into this other family name. So he says, okay, I'm out. Now that I know it includes Ruth and, and marrying her and trying to have a child, I'm out. Can't impair my own inheritance. I imagine Boaz is probably a good businessman, probably had a poker face here. But inside, maybe he's going, yes! We don't know for sure, but I, I, I wonder. Yes, it worked. So verse 7, we see the finalization. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel. Concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. I wore sandals today on purpose. It was a little bit of a step of faith because normally preaching shoes, and I knew some people would say something about it. They did it at the first service. Nothing rude, but oh, you got the sandals on, huh? I knew that would happen. And I've also been told by a former employer that I have ugly toes, which is it's true. I broke one. Don't look at them. I broke one growing up wrestling with my brother. I kicked a couch and never quite stopped looking at him. Never quite straightened out. But 
This, this is why I, I brought sandals today. In our day, what do we have? We have notaries that dip that round stamp in some ink and stamp a, a transaction like this. In these days, it was a sandal. But when it says, the man said, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Most believe that it was the other man that drew off his sandal and then handed it to Boaz. <laughs> the guy in the first service actually took it. You're smarter. <laughs> You're smarter. <laughs> what did that symbolize? Well, many believe it symbolized, hey, Boaz, you have the right to walk on that land. It's yours. Now, this man may have been fortunate that some other things didn't happen because back in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, if, a man, uh, if a man's brother refused to marry his brother's widow and have children with her, it says that the widow was not only to do the sandal thing, but she was to spit in his face as a sign of disgrace because he failed to, to take that responsibility. Now, we don't know if that had fallen out of practice by now in, in this time or if it was because the other man wasn't an actual brother. He was a little further away, so maybe the requirement wasn't as strong or maybe simply because Ruth and Naomi weren't here at this moment. Whatever the case, he got out of the spit in the face. But he did hand his sandal to Boaz, finalized the deal. Now here's the verification. Verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. You, you've seen this, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. We're witnesses. We saw the sandal transaction. We heard all this. That was the verification. Now, how about a benediction? These witnesses are going to go from just being passive to actually praying over Boaz and Ruth and their new family. Watch this. Second half of verse 11, they say, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Who are Rachel and Leah married to? Israel, Jacob, yes. God changed his name to Israel. They, along with their handmaidens, had the 12 tribes of Israel, those sons, right? They were fruitful. They say, May, may you be like Rachel and Leah. May you act worthily, Boaz, in Ephratha, and be renowned in Bethlehem. Ephratha is another name for that area. And may your house be like the house of Perez. Who's Perez? He's a, an ancestor in Judah's line. Many people in Bethlehem likely lived there. You want to learn where Perez came from? It's interesting. Read Genesis 38. But may you be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So what do you have there? You have two things. You have witnesses and you have prayer for the married couple, right? Now, several authors brought this up. So it's a little bit of a side note, but I think it's worth going down. This marriage had witnesses and people that prayed for it. And several authors pointed out that this is 
the biblical thread throughout. Our society tends to think of marriage as an individual thing between just the man and the woman. That's why you have people say, why do I have to have a ceremony? Why do I have to sign the certificate? Why can't we just live together and just keep it between us or whatever? Because marriage biblically was never only just about that man and that woman. It is a gift from God to the human race and a building block of society. And so this idea of witnesses for a marriage is really important. Why? Because when you get married, it's, it's not just the two of you. Number one, it's before God. But number two, you have people there that love you, that, that heard you make that lifelong vow, right? Till death do us part. That way, when it gets hard, as it will, <laughs> you have people there, friends that say, yeah, I was there that day. I remember when you guys made that covenant and we've had some struggles in our own marriage. Let me encourage you. I witnessed that covenant. Let me help you keep it. And then they prayed for him. What if we also, for every marriage in this room, had a group of friends around it that committed to pray for your marriage and my marriage? That's just as important, right? Because it will come under assault from the enemy. There will come hard days. Wouldn't you love to have a community praying around you? That's a lot of what the church is for. As we grow and get to those relationships where we share those challenges with each other. So I like that. A little bit of a side note, but in this story, you got the verification, the benediction. Now I want to talk about the gift. We'll go from the gate to the gift. What gift? Verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. The gift is the child. That's the biblical perspective, whether our world gets it or not. Children are a gift from the Lord. Right? It says the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name, the name of this Redeemer, be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, have given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Now, can you picture old Naomi sitting there with this little baby on her lap? I don't know how big that smile was. Maybe there's some tears of joy going through those wrinkles we encountered in chapter 1 from all the tragedy that she had been through. What a, what a contrast, right, between chapter 1 and chapter 4, the, the emptiness and now the fullness of this joy. And something weird happens in verse 17. Most of you all like to name your own children, right? Right? I mean, that was true even in biblical times. I know several of you who are working through that right now. You may get opinion from other people, but at the end of the day, it's going to be your choice, right? Well, watch what happens in verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him, the baby, a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. They went with it. Most, most commentators say Obed means servant. This, this baby would grow up not only to be a servant of God, but also a servant of Ruth, his mother, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, as he kept that inheritance and that land. 
within their family name. So that's the gift. I want to take a glimpse ahead. And we talked about the fact that God works in the everyday moments, right? And we don't always see the end result, right? We just live them moment by moment, sometimes wondering what in the world is going on. Well, watch this. Second half of verse 17, a glimpse ahead. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, did any of the people in that room that day know that? No, this, this was written years later. In fact, it goes on to share a little bit of a genealogy. Look at verse 21. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The king who was a man after God's own heart came out of these moments, right? So now as we, as we glimpse ahead, I want to look at some other gates, okay? We talked about the gate where Boaz had this everyday transaction. Now let's look ahead. Speaking of King David, you remember in 1 Chronicles 25, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence in Israel had been in an outlying city, and David wanted to bring it into Jerusalem, the capital city, the city of David. And it says he was wearing a linen ephod that day, translation, Hanes, fruit of the loom, though likely more modest than a lot of our underwear today, okay? He's, he's wearing his linen ephod. For a king, that would be shocking, okay? But he doesn't care because his focus is on something else. It says, verse 28, All Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David... Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. He's dancing in his linen ephod, and as the ark approaches the gates of Jerusalem, it bothers Michael, his bride. And what does he say? He says, I'll become more undignified than this, but I will celebrate before the Lord. David was not without his flaws, as we know, but you see his heart for God here. He wanted to celebrate before his Lord, and he didn't care what anybody thought. As that ark came in, some even believe Psalm 24, a psalm of David, was written for this moment. You think of this descendant of Ruth. Listen to these words in Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What a celebration of God's presence by this descendant of Boaz and Ruth. But I want to go even further as we glimpse ahead. You remember when they prayed over him and said, Boaz, may your name be renowned in Israel. May your name be famous, right, because of what you've done. Oh, it, it did become famous in a couple ways. The name of Boaz, did you know it ended up on one of the two pillars at the front of the temple in Israel? Physical pillars. Let me take you to 1 Kings 7, talking about Solomon, 
setting up the temple. It says he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple, 721. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. Boaz was the name of one of the pillars at the temple where God's presence was in Israel. But I'm here to tell you that his name was also a pillar in the genealogy of the true dwelling place of God, Jesus Christ. Watch this. Matthew 1, chapter 5, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And you swing down to the bottom. Where does it go? Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, did Boaz and Ruth... Naomi have any idea of this when they're going through their day-to-day moments? No. We're privileged to look back and see what God was doing, right? Think about their descendant centuries later, the descendant of David, Jesus Christ. Micah 5.2 prophesied it. What did it say? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, same town. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You think about his approach to the gates of Jerusalem. What is today? Palm Sunday, right? Do you remember what Naomi said to Ruth after she came back from the threshing floor and she just said, wait, the man won't rest until it's done? The same is true of our Redeemer when he was here in his earthly ministry. As he approached the gates of Jerusalem, he knew he was heading to a cross. He told his disciples about it many times. He would not rest until it was done. Listen to Luke 9.51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was locked in. He was on a mission, and nothing would stop him. He would not rest until it was done. And you think about that joyous day, Palm Sunday, John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, a descendant of Boaz and Ruth, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, at the gates of Jerusalem. I want to talk about our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So I want to draw some comparisons and some contrasts with him and the Redeemers in the book of Ruth. You remember what the other Redeemer said when he found out Ruth was part of the deal? Ruth 4, 6, the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Uh-uh. Contrast that with our Redeemer. What does it say in Philippians 2, 6? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He was willing to, to pay the price 
at great cost to himself. Okay? Boaz paid a price, right? Ruth 4.9, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech. We're talking about money, right? What was the price our Redeemer paid? Philippians 2.7, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Peter explains it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why did Boaz do what he did? Ruth 1.10 says it, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off. Does Jesus perpetuate the name of his followers who die physically? Oh, yeah. Look ahead to Revelation 21.27, speaking about the new Jerusalem. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All who come to Jesus have their names perpetuated forever in the Lamb's book of life. Right? Let's go one more. As they prayed over Boaz, he said, May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. Renowned, famous, let your name be spread around. And we showed how that happened with Boaz. Is the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, renowned? What does it say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It does not get more renowned than that. About Ruth 1.14, as they, they pray, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day, Naomi. He's not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus our Redeemer, a restorer of life to those who come to him in faith? You betcha. Our memory verse for the month, John eleven twenty-five. 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you see how it points to Jesus? I had lunch with a friend from the church on Friday who talked about the light bulbs going on, looking at how this idea of redemption points to Jesus and got him excited about the Old Testament again. I told him, hey, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to follow this thread more, 
I'd encourage you to check out a book by David Limbaugh. That last name sounds familiar on purpose. He's the brother of Rush Limbaugh. David Limbaugh wrote a great book called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Traces this thread all the way through. If you want to go deeper and see how it all points to him, I'd encourage you to check it out. But for now, as we prepare to close, Easter's next week, right? And I think about how these holidays can, can sometimes be just kind of a ritual. We can go through them, we can dress up, we can be there, but we may not know or be entering into what they're really all about, right? That's possible. I talked to somebody I know who got saved recently who said how, that's how it was growing up. We went to church every Easter, but it was just something we did. It didn't mean anything. Now that he's saved, this is going to be the first Easter where he really knows. Oh, now I know what it means that Jesus died and, and rose again. It, it's personal. It's personal now. Do you know in your life what it's all about? It, or is it more than a ritual? I want to take you to a couple more gates as you think about that. We have presented Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. And as you ponder what to do with him, to receive him, ignore him, or reject him, and the latter two lead the same direction. I know God would want each one of us to choose wisely. I want to take you first to the gates of wisdom. Proverbs 8, wisdom is talking, verse 34. As you consider Jesus, listen to wisdom. It says, Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Will you make the wise choice of receiving Jesus as your Redeemer? Have you made that choice? I want to take you to the gateway to the tree of life in Eden. Even though the word gateway is not mentioned there, you all know what happened. Adam and Eve lived in paradise. They deliberately disobeyed God. And what happened? Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The gateway to the tree of life was closed by their sin, and every one of us is born in that condition. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You cannot get to God through man-powered religion, through your own good works, through not doing this or not doing that. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Jesus comes on the scene and he talks about two very different gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate. What did he say in Matthew 7, 13? Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way, that is, way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Have you entered the narrow gate? Have you entered the wide gate? What's the narrow gate? Jesus said it in John 14, 6. 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 10, we read that Jesus is the door. John 10, 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You know in your life what Easter is all about. Have you entered through Jesus? The door. I know many of you have. That's why we celebrate this time of year, right? So if you have, I want to close with just a few more gates of encouragement. When you think about his future return that we're longing for, and we live in a world that's dark and getting darker. There's gates mentioned at his return. Listen to what it says in Mark 13, 29. Talking about the darkness growing in the world. He says, when you see these things taking place, you know that the Son of Man is near at the very gates. There's some encouraging gates. And even the whole context of Ruth, you think about his return. Author Warren Wearsby was pointing out how, you remember the book started in the days when the judges ruled, right? Kind of a time of chaos. There was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Where did things go from there in Israel? Who was their first king? Saul, right? Guy that looked really good to all the people around him. He's tall, hit, you know, all this stuff. Didn't turn out so great. And then who? Who? David, right? Man after God's own heart. Not perfect, but a man after God's own heart. And Warren Wiersbe was pointing out, even that pattern in the Old Testament gives us hope as we approach the last days today. He said, just like the time of Judges when it was chaotic and there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, this, this world is going to disintegrate more and more to where the chaos grows. No king over it all. We need somebody. And then what's going to happen? Through satanic inspiration, man's king will be raised up, the Antichrist. What's the encouragement here? That's not where it ends. It doesn't end with man's king because God's king the son of David, Jesus Christ, is at the gates. He's coming again, and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. The gates of his return. What about the gates of New Jerusalem? Revelation 21, 23. God gives it light, and the lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Those gates are coming for the redeemed. You say, great, but what about the meantime? It's tough down here. Spiritual battle rages, both internationally and personally. Well, I'm going to close by encouraging you with a mention of the gates of hell. Jesus talked about the gates of hell. You know what he said when he looked at Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18? He said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell 
shall not prevail against it. Amen? Father, thank you so much for this little book of Ruth. A gate, a marriage, a baby. The value of a moment because you are at work. Working all things according to the counsel of your perfect will. Help us trust you because we live in the moment. We, we don't see every piece of how it all works out. We live by faith, not by sight. Help us by your spirit to do just that. Lord, we know that it doesn't always work out the way we want it on this side of eternity. Sometimes it does. But even in those moments, when it doesn't work out that way this side, we know that there's an eternity coming where you will make all things new. You will make all things right. Give us strength to, to persevere in the meantime. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. That he was willing at great cost to himself, that he paid the price of his own blood. Lord, one day every tongue is going to confess his name. But I pray that everyone in this room would do it willingly before they step into eternity, that they make that choice for the narrow gate that leads to life, not the wide gate that leads to destruction. Draw them home, Father, to the cross where the price was paid for them. Help them know their sin a sin that weighs heavy on their heart today that they carried in here. Wonder, is there hope for me? Yes, there's hope. There is a redeemer for you. If you will turn to Jesus and say, I trust you paid for my sin on that cross. I believe you rose again. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior, my hope, my victory, my salvation, my redeemer. Draw them home, Father. If there are any on, on the fence on that, thinking through it, want to talk, I'll be in the prayer corner. For those of us who have that settled, may this time of year where we celebrate be extra special. As maybe we understand the idea of redemption in a different light, thanks to your book of Ruth. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.